arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. When the Pilgrim Fathers came to America in search of religious and political freedom, they settled in the northeastern sector of our country, known as New England. A part of New England, after the English county of Hampshire, came to be known as New Hampshire. New Hampshire is a land of history, of contentment and charm. Here are quaint covered bridges. Here are cities and towns older than our nation itself. Here are village greens and town meeting houses. New Hampshire is known as the Granite State. And from her quarries are taken the materials from which are fashioned some of our finest buildings and monuments. Pre-revolutionary days, when the tallest and straightest trees were felled, lumbering has played an important role in New Hampshire's economy. Today, the state's greatest natural resource is still her forests. And prominent in the state's industrial picture are those industries associated with her vast forest reserves. At strategic points, such as at Berlin on the Androscoggin River, a large share of the nation's total supply of wood and paper products are manufactured. The industrial metropolis and largest city in the state is Manchester, situated on the Merrimack River. Here at Manchester, as at more than 40 other locations in the state, the manufacture of textiles and textile products contributes measurably to the state's industrial wealth. One of the four largest cities in New Hampshire is Concord. Concord is the state capital, and the stature of the state's fine constitution is exemplified by her magnificent capital building. The only harbor in New Hampshire is at Portsmouth, at the mouth of the Piscataqua River. Portsmouth is the home port of a sizable fishing fleet, with a yearly catch which is far in excess of the state's own requirements. As in all of New England, good education is a tradition in New Hampshire. Over 2,500 public and private elementary schools, high schools, and academies provide facilities for the education of her youth. Higher education is offered at the University of New Hampshire at Durham, while at Hanover is Dartmouth College, the state's oldest educational institution. From her halls, many have gone forth to contribute no small share to the growth and destiny of the nation. Many of New Hampshire's early settlers came to seek a living from the soil. Today, the seacoast region and the fertile valleys of the Connecticut and Merrimack rivers are the state's principal farming areas. The production of milk and butter combines with the production of poultry and eggs to make up the greatest source of agricultural income. And when it comes to the tasty item department, certainly we can't afford to overlook these huge, luscious strawberries. An industry which is almost synonymous with New England is the maple syrup industry. New Hampshire can claim her rightful share of this industry, and the seasonal tapping of the trees and the gathering of the sap is fascinating, not to mention profitable business. 
One of New Hampshire's leading industries is catering to the thousands of visitors who yearly come to share her extraordinary scenery and recreational offerings. Tens of thousands of acres in state parks and reservations provide variety to be found few places in the world. For those of you who are looking for a thrill, here you have it in the Cannon Mountain Aerial Tramway. It's a fascinating, breathtaking ride. And as your car nears the summit, there is an unforgettable view of the White Mountain National Forest. One of nature's most awe-inspiring works is this giant profile of the old man of the mountains, sculptured out of the granite cliffs at Franconia Notch. And here's a real sensation for the visitor to New Hampshire, the famous Cog Railway up Mount Washington. This has long been a favorite tourist attraction, an exciting adventure as the puffing locomotive pushes the car up the steep incline to the top of the tallest peak in the presidential range and the highest mountain in the northeastern part of the United States. Yes, New Hampshire can offer practically every recreational attraction you can think of, from lakes and mountains to the inviting sands of her fine beaches. But come wintertime, thoughts turn to winter sports. These are some of the things, then, that add up to New Hampshire. The village greens and meeting houses. The importance of her main natural resources water power, quarries of granite, and vast forests. New Hampshire is one of the most friendly states in this land of ours. I have to say that the grandeur of the old man in the mountain is grandeur no more because it collapsed many years ago. And Hamilton and Prince William, they're fictitiously located near Portsmouth and Hampton Beach. And now back to the book. Reverend Brickus, purchase of the exact red paint from the scrape on Webster's boat, has Jones checking the camp where the boat is housed. Two more of Jones's suspects, Trooper O'Connell and Janet Boudreau, have been at the camp. And Jones makes a startling discovery at the camp when he learns that Janet Boudreau had the keys for Bricka's boat, the extra keys made at Jefferson's Hardware. The Reverend may have diverted his plans. Jones and a few students have a scheduled DVD on Hamilton College produced and are ready to show it later, but Jones decides to implicate Bricker within the framework of the DVD. Tune in and hear the evidence I'm Robert P. Fitton. Let's hear episode five, the unbelievable showdown and conclusion of The Handyman's Secret by Robert P. Fitton starts now. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 19. Bricker, as obnoxious and aggravating a person as he was, had no reason to kill Webster Howard. Jones brought the jeep through the wooded dirt road along the widening Pequonicut River. Past the tapering pines, the puffy cumulus clouds filled the sky near the shoreline marshes and Hamilton Bay beyond. A yellow-painted brown side appeared off the road in the forest, and the gate was open. A bright blue Subaru was parked next to the gate. The Christian youth group, campsites, horse trails, and boating. He followed the arrow left into the woods. An extensive campground covered with pine needles and several log cabins was visible in the clearing beyond the narrow road. A small red compact was packed outside the cabins. He slowed the jeep and cut the engine. 
Melanie wore a green baseball cap, sweatshirt, and jeans as she stepped off the cabin porch. Welcome to the camp, coach. It's quiet out here. Well, for now, wait till summer starts. Yeah, I can imagine. Where's the reverend? Haven't seen him in a while. Melanie, is there a boat, a good-sized boat, up here at the camp that's seaworthy? Sure. It's used for trips around the bay. Can I see it? asked Jones. Boat's moored at the river just down the trail. You buy any paint for that boat? Well, I'm not sure who maintains it. Through the tree branches, the boat was stark against the clouds and blue sky. The trail exited the woods and continued for less than a hundred yards through the marsh reeds to five other boats docked along the river mooring area. He walked along the older deck and he studied the red-rimmed hull for any sign of white paint from the maintenance free. Does Reverend Bricker use this boat? Melanie squinted her blue eyes as she thought. Sure, all the time in the summer. I think the last time he used it was in the fall. What about lately? asked Jones, walking past the boat. He was sure that was the boat he had seen in the bay. Not that I know of. Jones knew the hull would be marked with a stretch of white paint, unless it had been painted over. When the scuff came into view, he spun around and raised his voice. Boat's never been missing? No, but the keys were. The Reverend must have misplaced the keys last week because he was looking for them. He found them on the desk the next morning. Oh, then he nodded his head. The keys were kept on the hook. I see. Jones stared at the boat, but his mind raced and his heart thumped under his jersey. He still had no motive to include Bricker in a suspect list, but Webster had done work at the church. Did a nice-looking brunette ever come down here? She rides horses. Janet? Yeah, Janet Boudreau, J.B. She smiled. Nice lady. Janet likes to bring her horses along the river from the Fletcher stables. She donates riding lessons to the kids here at camp. The trails all connect. It's at least five miles through the conservation areas. Jones again studied the red-rimmed hull of the boat that met him last night. She ever use this boat, Melanie? She just rides the trails. State cops ever come over here? Big guy came down here earlier in the week, Tuesday, uh, Thursday. Trooper O'Connell? How did you know? Just a lucky guess. What did he want? Asked Jones. Same questions you asked, but he was real nervous. He ever used the boat? Nope. Okay. Thanks, Melanie. Jones still did not preclude the possibility of O'Connell using the boat. Yet anyone could have driven up to Race's Lounge and met Webster Howard. But somebody did pilot the youth group boat from the Pequonicut River to an unknown location. Boudreaux would have to bring the boat out, murder Webster, and wait for him at the bridge to come back. He wondered if O'Connell had time to drive back to Hamilton, get the boat into the bay, and kill Webster. But why not just kill Webster on the Cape? I wonder if this boat went out last night. Don't know. When does this camp open? June 15th. Someone had used this boat Tuesday night and last night. Mind if I look around, Melanie? No, go ahead. I need to check for some supplies for the summer. Nobody's been up here. Jones stepped onto the varnished deck. He studied the upper area for several minutes, and when he saw nothing, he descended the stairs to a darkened area lit by open side windows. A wood table was attached to the wall. Behind the table, a connector wire dangled from the wall. If there had been a radio in this boat, someone had taken it away. The entire lower area had been cleaned out. Keys dangled on the hook. Hey, Melanie, called Jones. Melanie emptied a trash barrel and turned. Does this camp have a megaphone? 
No, I don't think so, she said from the cabin doorway. There's a public address system in the main hall. Thank you. There'd be no way to prove if someone had modified a public address system and utilized ship's power. He remembered another one of his father's sayings. Never discount anything. Let me look at the PA system. Camp's main hall, the tabernacle, was open at one end and built entirely of wood. Even the windows were just cutouts in the wood. A mezzanine rimmed the upper windows adjoining a series of rooms. The PA system consisted of a black amplifier over five feet high and plugged into a conventional electrical box in the corner. It was the control panel that intrigued Jones. Reverb and bass could be adjusted on the panel. So could a modulated equalizer. Jones flipped the switch and spoke into the microphone. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Hamilton College, where at Larson Field, Coach Matthias Jones will take on the Norwich Panthers. Hey, that was pretty good, Coach. Ah, you ain't seen nothing yet, kid. Jones fiddled with the equalizer until his voice was transformed onto the voice in the boat. Testing, testing, one, two, three, four. That's weird. Yes, it is. All Jones needed was a way to power that amplifier on the boat. He heard something along the mezzanine. Did you hear that, Coach? Yeah, it sounded like a TV. He moved with Melanie toward the side stairs. Kids stay up here during camp. Jones listened as he passed the closed doors. The sounds of the funky music got louder as they neared the center. Jones turned the knob. Bucky Driscoll sat in the middle of the room in a lounge chair and scooped up ice cream from a carton. The widescreen TV blasted out colorful cartoons. Bucky? Oh, hi, Matthias. To Bucky's left were a dozen discarded cartons of Big Mama's ice cream. Bucky, what the hell are you doing? Oh, I'm taking part in an important TV rating study. Do you have any idea what happened? Yeah, Elma Fudge just fired at Bugs, but he missed. Why? Bugs was giving him grief. No, why are you up here? Well, they promised me all the ice cream I could eat and 5000 in cash. Bucky, you were kidnapped. Kidnapped. All I have to do is stay in this room and watch the cartoon channel and keep notes. Unbelievable. He walked around and glanced between the TV and Bucky in the chair. Who's behind this? Mr. Big. What? That's not a name. Oh, yeah, buddy boy. Check that cigar box. I already have 2000 Jones opened the box and saw $20 bills stuffed inside. What did this Mr. Big look like? Come on, Bugs. Jump down that rabbit hole. He looked up at Jones. You know, that Alma Fudd is an idiot. Right. Did Mr. Big meet you at the pendulum? I knew Bugs would go down that hole. No, Detective Hooper held me out the window and out to his truck. The detective went back inside the pendulum, and then Nixon yanked me out of the truck. Nixon? Well, he wore a Nixon mask. You know, President Nixon? And then they put me in the limo. Oh, now it's making sense. How did you go from the pendulum to eating ice cream here at camp? This guy knows how to make a deal. What? I cut a deal with Mr. Big. No talking to the outside world? I put on 18 pounds. All the cartoons I want and cash for my trip with Arnie down to Disney World. That's great, Bucky. He said as Melanie just stared at Bucky in the chair. She whispered to Jones, I had no idea he was up here. I know, I know said Jones as he took out his phone and dialed Strickland. Judge Strickland. Judge, I have a present for you. My birthday is until next month. I've located Bucky. Oh, where is he? At the Mountain Park Funhouse? Close. 
Somebody conned him into staying up at the youth camp on the Pequonicut. Bricker. Maybe. Boudreaux volunteers up here also. But there's somebody else involved with getting Bucky up here. Somebody he calls Mr. Big. He wore a mask and talked to Bucky about staying up here. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 20. Early the next morning, Jones pulled into Brownie Plimpton's Bay Marine Surplus Store just as Strickland's cruiser crossed the parking lot's crushed shells. Jones shut off the Jeep and ran to the cruiser window. Bucky knows nothing, said Strickland. Well, I'm glad you finally figured that out, George. Pinky had him over the barracks for five hours last night. First he heard of the kidnapping is when you brought it up. They took him over to PW Medical for observation. Yeah, they should send him to the psych unit. Apparently all that ice cream added to his waistline. And that's the extent of it. Yep. Now the killer has all that money thanks to Hooper. Pinky was mild on Bucky compared to Hooper. Hooper refused to talk or get legal representation. Herbert had booked him, but he got released. Yeah, I understand. Matthias, why would Bricker kill Webster? The question of the hour, George. He pulled open the door and Strickland in full uniform stepped into the parking lot. Bricker did have access to that boat. I called the church, but apparently Bricker will be back later. They stepped into the cooler air. Where is he? His secretary wouldn't say. And his wife's not around. Oh, she probably doesn't know anyway. A long, scraggly-haired man in a multicolored striped tank top emerged from the back room and slid to a stop behind the register. His dark eyes popped open as he did a double-take. He made odd noises as he rounded the corner and knocked over a box of bait, then leaped forward to catch the box in mid-air. Brownie, uh, you know Coach Jones. I don't know if I should be talking to you, he said, extending his teeth and looking away. Why is that? Oh, you know why, he said loudly and jabbed his fingers through his thick shoulder-length hair. Brownie, I don't even know you. Well, let's keep it that way. Oh, boy, said Jones, throwing up his hands in the air as he turned. Look, Brownie, we're here for one thing. Show us the converter I talked about on the phone. He's not going to steal it, is he? Jones spun around. He approached Brownie with a pointed finger. Brownie backed up and knocked over a wooden barrel of plastic barbers and landed on the tiles. Then he scrambled around the counter. I'll call the cops. The cops are here, pal. Look, Brownie, where's the converter? Brownie kept staring at Jones as he reached below the counter. He lifted what looked like a lighter insert. On the other side was a three-pronged plug. This baby will give you the max. Can it handle an amplifier? Oh, yeah, said Brownie, gyrating his head. Then he leaned his elbow on the glass counter. Did Bricker come in here, Brownie? asked Jones. Bricker's never been in here, he said. Then he looked toward the ceiling. Jones looked upward. Well, he could have bought that converter years ago said Strickland. How come you haven't found Bucky, George? asked Brownie. I have no idea where Bucky is. Arnie Dewis said that Jones dropped the bag of money in the bay. I never dropped the bag. I wouldn't believe rumors Arnie spreads all over town. Arnie has a nose for news, said Brownie again, looking at the ceiling. Jones looked up again. He's just plain nosy. <laughs> Arnie said you were touchy. Brownie darted behind the wall. Let's get out of here, George. Call yourself a private investigator? Yelled Brownie from somewhere out back. I'm not a private investigator. Hey, you got that right. What's wrong with that guy? Asked Jones as Strickland let him out the door. 
Jones looked down toward Sal's grill diagonally across the road. Lark claims it happened during the super-duper blooper game. The what? I don't even want to know. Are you sure it's a good one? said Strickland halfway into his cruiser. Jones tried not to grin. See, Lark was thrown out of a game against Devonshire College. Jones stepped around the jeep. Lark was thrown out of a game? He was, for dropping the F-bomb. Not at one, but both referees. Jones leaned against his jeep and pinched the bridge of his nose. Then he laughed. Why would he swear at the refs? They had too many guys on the field. Well, accept the penalty and move on. Lark said the clock was moving way too fast. Well, that's ridiculous. Oh, it gets better. Brownie climbed, he was normal then, climbed the telephone pole to cut the wires after Locke was thrown out. Apparently Locke was egging him on outside the fence. Did anybody see this? I guess not. Brownie cut the wires and he got zapped. Locke did something with eucalyptus. He said that woke Brownie up. But he was never the same. You mean he was hurt neurologically. Matthias, your guess is as good as mine. They put him back in the game and he ran for five touchdowns. They let him play? Yeah. And over the years, he became some kind of latter-day hippie. Hey, look, I'm just a small-town police chief. I can't vouch for the citizens of the town. Lucky for you, George. Which brings us back to Bucky and Bricker. You need to locate Bricker. I think for whatever reason, he killed Webster. Yeah, and how does O'Connell fit into all this? Hooper, said Jones. Hooper says he was about to have O'Connell arrested. Well, Hooper is a boob, but I find the information about the boat very interesting. I need to see if anyone made keys for that boat. Apparently, duplicates were made. Strickland's face tightened as his cell phone rang. George Strickland. What, Dom? Are you sure? Strickland held out the phone. What's the mystery, George? O'Connell's body just washed up under the Crosstown Bridge. Did he jump? Doesn't appear that way. So the killer kills again. Jones moved away from Strickland and up to Coco, smoking a cigarette on the rocks along the swift-moving river below the Crosstown Bridge. Near one of the concrete pylons, divers pulled the long body into the aluminum state police boat. That's him, Jonesy. Coco took another drag on the cigarette. I lay ten to one odds he was poisoned, probably upstream. My suspects in Webster's murder were O'Connell, Bricker, and J.B. She didn't do it. I told you that. Turned to Jones. Why Bricker? The paint matches the boat at the youth camp. J.B. works over there as a volunteer. Just forget about your wild theories, Jonesy. She didn't kill nobody. The boat motor started, and the boat moved across the river toward the shore. We found Bucky. Where was he, in a cage at the zoo? Youth camp. He said somebody called Mr. Big told him he'd have all the ice cream he wanted and watch the cartoon channel if he stayed in the room at the tabernacle. Hey, look, and they paid him money. Driscoll's a bigger fool than I thought. If that's possible, J.B. wouldn't do that. Somebody had duplicate keys made to that boat. Coco, she could be in this with Bricker. Coco stared at him and threw the cigarette into the river. Then he headed back to his B&W, parked under the street lamps. Jones moved down toward Kevin Phillips and Strickland. Dias, I heard you found Driscoll, said Phillips. Driscoll, but no money, Kevin, said Jones. You need to question Bricker, George. 
Why? Because the boat at the camp has a paint scrape like the one on the maintenance free? It's the exact color. Jones watched the BMW make a U-turn and head back to the docks. He wondered if Coco had told him all he knew. I need more, Matthias. Get me more on Bricker. Jones moved quickly with Strickland up the stairs to the medical examiner's office in Prince William. Wendy, the receptionist, always approached Jones as if she wanted a night out on the town. Hello, Coach Jones. Hello, Wendy. Miss Cantell, would you let Clayton know we're in here? Clayton is in Boston. You'll have to deal with stubble trouble. Strickland rolled his eyes at Jones. The blonde-haired Wendy chewed gum and smiled at Jones as she entered the rear room. George, Clayton doesn't think this kid is too swift. All we want to know is how O'Connell died. How difficult can that be? Wendy giggled, and then a short kid with scraggly blonde hair and gold-rimmed glasses followed her into the lobby. He wore a white lab coat and a tiny blue bow tie. Who the hell are you? asked Strickland. He had a high-pitched voice, which made him sound even younger. Sir, I'm Everett Stubble. You must be Chief Strickland and Coach Jones. O'Connell, the state trooper. Like I told Detective Hooper. Hooper? erupted Strickland. Listen, son, I'm 27 years old, and I have a doctorate from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Well, I'm 27, said Jones. What's your college? Indiana. Look, Stubble, Hooper is not a detective. Well, he seemed pretty competent to me, and he had credentials. Who cares? Hold it, hold it, said Strickland. How did this man die? Frankly, I want to be sure of all my results here. I got in trouble with the Howard autopsy from Dr. Morris. Just give us a guess, said Jones. Are you a detective? asked Stubble, looking over his glasses. No, I am not. Then I'm afraid I cannot divulge. Stubble, you call me when you get an answer, said Strickland. Bye, coach, <laughs> said Wendy, and she waved her fingers. Once they were on the stairs, Jones took out his phone. Who are you calling? Clayton. That kid is a little dweeb. We'll get the info soon enough. O'Connell dying has to be tied into the Webster Howard thing. It's just too convenient. Clayton needs to fire that bozo. Well, I doubt he's going to fire Herbert's nephew. Oh, I forgot about that. Jones opened the outside door. When you're close to finding the truth in a murder investigation, the more likely you are to die. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 21 Jones balanced the communications department phone between his shoulder and ear as the video rolled across the monitor. His three students, editors of the file, sat next to him. Scenes of the college taken through the academic year were strewn together with appropriate music. Yes, Nigel, it looks good. Excellent. Hamilton is looking forward to it. What about the million dollars? LG has insurance people coming up to Fletcher Hill this afternoon, and I have word that Hamilton wants the Howard matter put to rest. Well, I need to check everywhere Webster worked. Jones did not mention he was specifically looking into Webster Howard's relationship with Bricker. Was Mabel Howard involved in the First Parish Church? Well, I'm not sure of that, but you might want to talk with Mrs. Norris in the parish office. She works a few days a week. Right, I talked to her on the phone. Hooper was bothering her. You need to pull in that detective's reins. Nigel, he doesn't work for me, and he's not a detective. What about the Reverend? How exactly does he run the church? I mean, financially. Excuse me, Matthias, but what relevance does that have to the murder investigation? 
What's his background? Any hint of scandal? Hooper appeared in the corridor. That is an excellent question, Jones. Oh, God. What was that, Matthias? Nothing. Jones covered the phone as Hooper stepped into the room. Are you suspecting the Reverend in Webster Howard's murder, Jones? Hooper strutted up to Jones. I can find out that information. Hooper, shut up. Nigel, Bricker appears to be very vindictive. Well, I will not comment on that. Leave me out of any aspersions on the Reverend's character. Well, where did he come from? Before he arrived here in Hamilton. Vermont. And a word to the wise, I would not be asking questions concerning the Reverend. You'd be causing an upheaval in the parish. Okay, Nigel. Jones ended the call and turned to Hooper. I'm surprised you weren't lowered in here by helicopter, Hooper. Not a bad idea. Now, he said, hovering close to Jones, word has just in that O'Connell was poisoned with the same cleaner as the dog and Webster Howard. Except the dose was higher this time. Well, thanks for the info, but I've got other fish to fry. I have to tell you, Jones, that during this entire investigation, I have suspected Reverend Bricker. Oh, sure, and you haven't bothered to say anything until now, right? I have aborted my thoughts. Not the first time, said Jones. Excuse me? Hooper, we're busy here. He turned toward the students. Chris, does Mark have the widescreen for Fletcher Hill? Mark said Hamilton Fletcher has a unit and he's agreed to bring it to the drawing room. Good. A capital idea, said Hooper as Jones winced. Hooper. Detective Hooper, said Hooper, raising his index finger. Jones faced the students. I'm going back into town for a while. Call my cell if you need me. Will do. Not you, Hooper. Good job, both of you, with the video. We'll have a final review tomorrow morning. Hooper trailed Jones into the corridor and then faced him directly. Bricker and the Red Rim Boat demonstrates Bricker's guilt. Jones stopped near the stairwell. How did you know that? Part of my agenda. Oh, your agenda. Goodbye, Hooper. Jones scurried down the stairs, but Hooper followed. Hooper, will you get lost? You need my protection, Jones. I am a world-class sniper. Seven-time world champion. Jones laughed. <laughs> yeah, you're a world-class something or other. Someone made duplicates of the boat keys, said Hooper. Jones stopped outside the door. You amaze me. The Reverend has it hidden well if he's absconded off with church funds. Well, for once I agree with you, Clyde. What did Howard know? Did he simply have something on the Reverend? Or the Reverend on him? Vice versa, etc., etc. What are you saying? asked Jones as he moved toward his jeep. Hooper climbed in and Jones started the jeep. Hooper, get out of the jeep. Whoever killed Webster Howard wanted him out of the way, Jones. And O'Connell was on to it. Jones looked to his right. Why is that? He denied having the affair with Mabel Howard. But there are witnesses in Millbury who saw them together. Jones pulled onto Main Street with Hooper still in the jeep. He climbed the hill toward the center of town. Hooper, who are you? Really? Hooper produced a sly grin. Clyde Hooper, MXP, LBZ, ORAT. Jones shifted and coasted past the bank. I think the Reverend kidnapped Driscoll to extract the million from Mr. Fletcher. Jones jammed on the brakes. The only people I've talked in town about Bucky are Strickland, Pinky, Harris, and Hamilton Fletcher. How did you know? Driscoll needs to take off some of that weight. 
and I agree about you leaving him at camp until the kidnapper is found. Incredible. Jones squinted, but instead of heading south, he veered toward Dewar's lumber. He quickly crossed the railroad tracks and brought the jeep into the yard. I need to find out if anybody duplicated keys to that youth camp boat. Another capital idea. Very good, very good. With your permission, Hooper, I'll check with Bill at Dewar's. I'd like to know if anybody duplicated a boat key recently. Oh, you have my permission, of course. I'm glad. My course now would be to confront Bricker directly, Jones. Get him and get him now. We only have suspicions, Hooper. I'm not going to run around shooting off my mouth until I have something. We need to shake him. Shake him. Jones shut off the engine. Hooper, use your head, will you? He left the jeep and walked ahead of Hooper to the small hardware section behind the main lumber yard. When he reached the door, he turned back to the jeep, but he didn't see Hooper. Where is he now? Talking to yourself, Matthias? asked Bill inside the open door. Jones turned. Who, me? You find the boat? Yes, I did. He walked past the register, but he gazed over his shoulder for Hooper. Bill, I need to know something else. What's that? The Reverend Brickett. Has he come in here? Sure, the Reverend's been in here. Buys little things. Maybe a hammer, a screwdriver, or some grass seed and fertilizer. Off and on he comes in. Ever get duplicate keys for a boat? Bill squinted and stroked his chin. Nope, I never made keys for him. What about Arnie or somebody else? <laughs> Every time Arnie makes a duplicate key, messes up the cut, and the key doesn't work. Gets caught in the lock. Anyone come in and make copies of a boat key? Well, lots of people. How about a state cop or a nice-looking brunette horse rider who has a birthmark on her cheek? Not that I can recall. Go up to Jefferson's. Courtney will be able to help, but he can't cut keys either. Jones nodded and exhaled. Keep this under wraps, Bill, if you would. Will do, coach. Jones exited the building and crossed the lumber yard to his jeep, but he still saw no sign of Hooper. He sat behind the wheel for a few minutes contemplating Bricker's role in the murder and worried about Hooper causing more trouble. Quickly, he backed up the jeep and started across the tracks. He approached the Brick police station and debated whether to talk to Strickland. Instead, he crossed Main Street and swung up to the parking meters in front of Jefferson's Hardware's weathered clapboards and long porch. He moved up the spongy stairs along new rows of shiny lawnmowers and wheelbarrows. Harvey Miller, a small bag in his hand, opened the screen door. Harvey, keeping Jefferson's in business? A bag of bolts won't do that. Hear anything about Bucky Driscoll? Still the same. Who killed Webster? I don't know. I tell you, I can see the Howard house right from my second floor. Mighty funny that troop was over there on the night Webster went out. Rumor has it he met Webster down the Cape. Webster always lived next to you, Harvey? Oh, the old man Nate. He owned a big chunk. Gave Webster the plot when he married Mabes. She really sunk money into that house. And her car, oh boy. Jones briefly held his shoulder. I'll let you know if I find anything. Yeah, old Webster wouldn't have gone down unless someone got him by surprise. Jones nodded and stepped inside the hardware store. He squeezed between several fertilizer bags piled by the front door, but tripped and fell onto the wood floor. Oh, my shoulder. The short, gray-haired Cora Jefferson moved like a high-energy machine down the main aisle. I've been telling that bubble-headed son of mine to move those damn bags. Jones rubbed his shoulder as he stood. Ah, oh, right in front of the door. Well, he's a dimwit. What can I tell you? Are you all right, Matthias? Where is uh, the dimwit? 
Cora covered her mouth and laughed like a revving buzzsaw motor. <laughs> the dimwit is off somewhere, probably making another one of those three-hour deliveries. I end up calling his cell phone, but he doesn't answer. My husband were alive. I need to check on some keys. Oh, okay, he messed up another key, did he? No, I need to know if somebody made a boat key. Well, I don't make any keys anymore because of my arthritis. She opened and closed her fist. Now, I have to rely on the idiot boy. If he ever comes back, have him call me. Okay, you watch yourself on the way out. Jones nodded and grabbed his shoulders. He climbed over the bags. He stood on the porch and looked across the common. Finding out more about Bricker might give Jones insight into his character. He checked Main Street but didn't see Hooper. The detective might turn up anywhere, and he might do something bizarre like he had in Prince William. Once inside the jeep, Jones debated whether to snoop around the church. Any questioning of Mrs. Norris might begin a wild retaliation by the Reverend. He pulled away from Jefferson's and started around the common toward the church with an increasing uneasy feeling about Bricker. He glanced over at his own house and then up the church drive. Bricker's PT cruiser was not parked near the church hall or on the drive. Still, he hesitated linking Bricker to the Webster Howard murder or to Bucky's abduction, and Strickland had Wendell staking out the camp. Jones again checked for Bricker as he signaled at the far end of the common and sped up the church drive. He brought the jeep to the crushed stone parking lot in front of the church hall, but he worried about Bricker showing up as he stepped outside and headed toward the main offices. The sound of a computer keyboard echoed from inside the office screen door. The door spring creaked as it stretched open and he stuck his head inside the darker, cooler air. Curly brunette with rose lips smiled and kept typing. Good morning. I'm Matthias Jones. Yes, coach, I know who you are, and you're the one who hired that obnoxious Detective Hooper. No, ma'am, I didn't. I threatened to kick him out. Well, if you're coming in, come in. Thank you, said Jones, stepping up, and the door slammed. Don't worry about it. No, he does that. Then she continued typing on the keyboard. Are you looking for the Reverend? Jones raised his brows. Well, actually, I wanted to apologize for our little argument after Webster's funeral. I guess it's gotten all over town. <laughs> no kidding. Great. Well, however, it wasn't your fault. She started typing again. Reverend Monson was never like him. Reverend Monson never raised his voice. Reverend Monson never confronted anyone. Reverend Monson worked with people. Did Bricker come here after Monson? Oh, God, no. There was a six-month lag. They brought the Reverend in from Southington, Vermont. That much I do know. What's the Reverend really like? He can be hard to work with, that's for sure. She stopped typing and laughed. <laughs> you know, he likes to have things the way he wants. This is his church. His church. He ever lose his temper? Well, violent, asked Jones, and she started typing again. What was his relationship to Webster Howard? Mrs. Norris pushed the chair back from the desk. I hope you're not trying to somehow connect Reverend Bricker to Webster Howard's murder. I'm trying to find out who killed Webster Howard, and I'm not naming anyone. Webster's activities here at the church may steer me in that direction. Oh, Webster fixed everything when it needed fixing, and he seemed to get along with the Reverend. The Reverend had me compile a list of things to do, and Webster did them. Cut the grass, too. Did they ever argue? No, well, not if you call it an argument. 
couple of weeks back when Father Gallagher and the Reverend tried to settle the land thing, the Reverend and Webster, let's say, had a discussion. Her eyes moistened. I can't believe Webster's lying back there now in the cemetery. Were they talking about the land? I'm not sure. Webster was waiting for the Reverend to give me the weekly list when Gallagher left. Is there anything about the land that might concern Webster? I don't see how. You think their discussion is connected to the murder? Jones shrugged his shoulders. Who knows? I think everything has to be strung together, and then it will make some kind of sense. All I know is the Reverend can be stubborn. He accounts for every penny. Even at the auction last year, he got into an argument about a piece of furniture and taking a business check from Sal. You know, Sal's grill? Sounds cantankerous. If Janet hadn't stepped in, I think Sal would have cracked that chair over his head. Janet? Asked Jones, and his stomach jolted. Janet? Boudreaux? What? She's a nice girl, a woman. She helped raise money not only for the Reverend, but around the greater Hamilton area. Jones sat down, still trying to sort through Janet Boudreaux's involvement. Are you all right, Mr. Jones? When's the last time you saw Janet? Just last week. Reverend Bricker had another one of his charity deposits to make. She took care of deposits. Did she go to this parish? Yes. Was it deposited in a local bank? I'm not sure about that. I haven't seen her since. Okay, thanks. Any time there, coach. Jones let the door shut and returned to the jeep. As much as he wanted to speak with Bricker directly, he was still stunned about Boudreaux. Hey. Hey. JB did charity work for Bricker. So what? Bricker was funneling money to somebody at RL for a deposit. I'm convinced of it. I think she was the conduit, wittingly or unwittingly. I think Webster became aware of this because O'Connell followed him down there. The same person that killed Webster poisoned O'Connell. Sounds like an M.O. Which leaves J.B. or Bricker. J.B. was naive, Jonesy. It had to be Bricker. Where the hell is she? Unknown. I keep trying her phone, Jonesy, and I get nothing. And I keep coming back to the fact that Webster was poisoned before he went out to the track by the same person that poisoned her dog. It had to be Bricka. I'm going to check and see if anyone had keys made for that boat. Yeah, you do that, Jonesy. I'll talk to you. Courtney's gray truck was now back in front of Jefferson's hardware. Jones rotated his sore shoulder and wondered if Mrs. Jefferson had badgered Courtney about the fertilizer stack. He started his jeep and drove past his own house around the common. This time, Jones avoided the fertilizer bags. Mrs. Jefferson, behind the tool counter, spotted him and cupped her hands. Courtney! Courtney! Jones gave her the thumbs-up sign and meandered down the main aisle toward a four-sided movable pegboard display with keys. Courtney squinted through his thick glasses as he climbed the wide wooden cellar stairs. He had the dazed look of a man with too many things on his mind. He grimaced at his mother before focusing on Jones. How are you, Court? I found him, mother. Make sure you move that damn fertilizer when you're done. He waved his hands through the air and shook his head. You're looking for someone who had a boat key duplicated, Matthias. There are lots of boats here in Hamilton. Mrs. Jefferson blabbed a few miles ah, over. Can't. Courtney oh, glanced in his to, mother's direction. We're trying to sell that fertilizer is what we're trying to do. 
Anybody in particular? Buddy. Reverend Bricker. Come toppling no, over. the Reverend has never duplicated any keys, and I can make them all. Jones stroked his chin. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. What about the state trooper, O'Connell? Nope. Jones paced around the key rack and stared at the rounded cutting blade. What about Webster Howard's wife? Mabes? Yeah, Mabes. Yes. Really? Yeah, for that big new Mercedes of hers. No, a boat key, Courtney. Nope. Jones wandered into the electrical aisle when Mrs. Jefferson bothered Courtney about the fertilizer again. Just get your butt over here and move this stuff out of here, Courtney. All right, mother. Bricker or anyone else ready to use the boat for murder would have had keys duplicated away from town. He nervously nibbled on his knuckle and placed his foot on the gondola base. Melanie said that Boudreaux had ridden her horse around the camp trails. Courtney! Well, it's going to kill my back, mother. I can't move all those bags. Just like your father, slacking out of a good day's work. I'll have one of the stock boys do it in the morning. Yeah, sure you will. After we get sued. You're not going to sue us, are you, Matthias? No, I'm not going to sue you. Look, Courtney, how about a nice-looking brunette woman with a beauty mark on her cheek? Did she come in for a key? Courtney's blue eyes widened through his glasses. Oh, yeah, I remember her. Sure, he remembers everything with a skirt that walks through the front door, said Mrs. Jefferson. She paid cash. It was only a dollar nine. I let her have it for free. I heard that. Courtney tightened his brow and clamped his lower teeth over his lip. It was about ten days ago. Jones quickly turned. Janet Boudreau was in here making keys ten days ago. She didn't give her name. I made one key for a boat. I don't remember what boat, though. She said she wanted a duplicate. Why? Is there any trouble? Just some unanswered questions. She was very nice. Jones nodded. Now he was even more confused. Thanks, Court. Sure. Courtney! Duty calls. Yeah, looks like you're going to be moving some fertilizer, said Jones as he started down the aisle. Maybe she should move it. I overheard that remark, too, you big lummox. Mrs. Jefferson appeared in the next aisle. Jones waved and bolted for the front door. She continued to berate Courtney store. as Jones not moved our, onto the porch. This isn't the town dump. What he are you still doing? did not Just think J.B. had piloted bags. the boat, what? nor did he think she had killed Webster It'll Howard. Two minutes. Maybe she ordered Webster Howard's death or was involved with his demise. He quickly returned to the Jeep, and for a second time that afternoon, he drove away from Jefferson's hardware. His mind spun with suspicion and doubt as he veered back toward the college and decided to parallel Main Street. J.B. would have worried about being seen buying a key if she were the killer, and the killer thought the storm would blow up the coast. With Webster lost at sea, no one would question her purchasing a boat key. Once away from Main Street, the woods separated him from Washington Street. Bricker had no compelling reason to kill Webster Howard. Outwardly, he did not even have the usual vices of womanizing, drug use, or absconding with funds. Jones slowed as he gazed through the woods toward Webster Howard's backyard. What did you know, Webster? And who was so upset about it? Brown and white cows were scattered in the afternoon sunlight across Harvey Miller's farm fields. 
How many times had Webster hiked these woods behind his house? Jones turned up the jeep and decided to return home and have something to eat. But as he trekked along through the woods, he had a unique perspective to see Webster Howard's house and the disputed plot of land just a few hundred yards up Washington Street. This Howard house is too convenient. Quickly, he returned to his jeep and drove back into town. He raced around the common. Bricka's PT Cruiser was now parked near the church offices when he exited Washington Street. The cleared hill, coveted by Gallagher and held by Bricker, came into view. From this angle, the Howard house was hidden by the forest. How did the church get this land? Yes, that is the question. After all, Bricker was defiant about selling the land. Maybe it wasn't all prejudice or even possessiveness. At worst, Bricker himself had done something nefarious. But was it bad enough to kill Webster Howard? And how did that concern J.B.? Jones signaled by the bank and found a parking space across from Abrams Realty. He crossed Main Street and glanced at the church in the bright sunshine at the far end of the common. The short-haired Marsha Abrams waved at him from inside the window span. She put out her cigarette and met him at the front door. The cooler air chilled his arms. Feels like winter in here, Marsha. Cold or sweat, sweat or cold, either way, somebody's uncomfortable. How's business? asked Jones, looking at the house photographs tacked to a side corkboard. This is Hamilton. The big houses sell over here. We have rentals, and we had five construction starts this year. Most of our volume comes through business in Prince William. You said you wanted to know about a piece of land that we had for sale. Well, just try and get by the Hamilton Commission, which includes both Hamilton and Ham Fletcher. They want to leave Hamilton just the way it was a hundred years ago. You're looking for land? No, no, I want to know about that land next to Webster Howard's house on Washington Street. Oh, you mean the on-again, off-again land deal. Right. Does the church have title to that land? Well, the reverend kept changing his mind, driving me nuts. There were ten acres there. He couldn't make up his mind. I heard you had a go-around with him. I did. Who owned that land before the church? That land was given to the church by Nathan Howard, 1947, for the sum of one dollar. Howard. Nathan was the father. He's buried behind the church. Thank you, Marsha. You've been very helpful. Now it all makes sense. Once outside, Jones spotted Hooper sitting on his jeep hood. In his hand was a clipboard filled with papers. Hooper, get off my car. Don't be so fast to shoo me away, Jones. What now? I have to get ready for the presentation at Fletcher Hill tomorrow. You'd better listen. Okay, what is it? Hooper handed the clipboard to Jones. Jones read a computer copy of a plane connection from Manchester to Miami to Mexico City two days from now. Hooper, you're incredible. Yes, I know that. Jones exhaled and began turning the paper sheets. Bricker's name was signed at the bottom of a real estate transaction less than two months ago. A lawyer named Stephen Boudreau from Southington, Vermont, had drawn up the document. Stephen Boudreau? The land was sold to a development company called Ridgeway from Southington, Vermont. The Ridgeway Group! Jones's stomach spun as he gripped the fender. $850,000! And Bricka came from Vermont. But look at the lawyer, Hooper. Stephen Boudreau must be connected to Janet Boudreau. Excellent work, Hooper. 
Would you consider partnering up with me in my future endeavors? Jones said nothing for several seconds. I think I'll stay where I am, Hooper. Jones surveyed the common in the church. So, our innocent little reverend has decided to pocket a lot of money and leave town in two days. Jones stared at Bricker's PT Cruiser. The man is a murderer, Hooper, but I'll unhitch his wagon. See, somehow Webster became aware of this land thing. I'm not quite sure how. My guess is that he knew Boudreaux, and the land thing came up in conversation. She wouldn't have just divulged the transaction, but Webster must have figured it out and threatened to smash Bricker's operation. No, not necessarily. He may have merely been upset because Bricker had made off with money from his father's land. Bricker had Boudreaux innocently make the keys for the boat so no one would know it was him. When he heard about the approaching storm, he made his move. But Jones, he's leaving the country in 48 hours. Standing next to his Jeep, Jones grinned again. I don't think so. We're going to invite a few more guests to the faculty send-off at Fletcher Hill. I'm sure the Reverend Bricker will enjoy the performance. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 22 Jones and his students scampered up the drive to the Fletcher Estate's East Portico. Gripping the freshly burned DVD, Jones turned under the prodigious white columns overlooking the acres of the town forest extending to Hamilton Bay and the stretching coastline beyond. Pinky Harris's state police SUV, flanked by two Hamilton police cars and Herbert Lane's long yellow Cadillac, was strategically parked below the pines near the Fletcher garage. Faculty and town vehicles, including Bricker's Navy PT Cruiser, were also positioned along the drive. Are you sure you want to do this, Coach? asked Mark Morrison. Reverend Bricker will flip. Oh, I'm looking forward to that, Mark. What will he do? asked Sue, who had done most of the new editing last night. Jones paused as the estate doors opened. Full speed ahead, people. Good afternoon, Matthias, said Hollings. Hollings, you're looking chipper, said Jones as they moved into the spacious towel-lined foyer. Chipper is as chipper does, he said with a slight smile. Guests were crawling around the foyer and a conversation buzz resonated down the drawing room corridor. Do you need assistance with your production equipment? No, we're headed right to that widescreen that Mark set up last night. This way, please. Hollings leaned to his left and said something to the Latin woman in the black dress, serving hors d'oeuvres on the white silver trays. Juanita will bring you to the drawing room. Thank you, Hollings. How's your family, Juanita? Growing up, sir. She motioned Jones down the long hallway. He followed Mark and Sue toward the end of the hall. In the larger room, guests sipped champagne and munched on the hors d'oeuvres. Round linen tabletops, each with a lighted water candle, dotted the parquet floor. The strong smell of rich brewed coffee and an assortment of food drifted through the air. He spotted Hamilton Fletcher's 106-inch screen TV behind the long linen-draped VIP table near the closed drapes. Herbert Lane, drink in hand, stood with the tanned, white-haired Hamilton Fletcher and three other college trustees near the atrium doors. Jones thought he might avoid Lane before setting up the DVD, but the rotund district attorney excused himself and meandered across the parquet. He cornered Jones near the front table. Jones, what are you up to? Jones was always amused how Lane's smoky gray toupee always remained rigid when he flexed his forehead.
This request for extra police is quite unorthodox. I wouldn't drink too much of the bubbly, Herbert. You're going to need your faculties. Now, wait a minute, Jones. If you know something about the Howard murder, I want to know right now. Don't play games with me. You don't know the law, mister. Your toupee is crooked, Herbert. What? What? He raised his hands to both sides of his hairpiece. Enjoy the show, Herbert. They were motioned by Juanita to the DVD player next to the screen. Mark checked the connection, inserted the DVD, and nodded to Jones. Showtime, said Jones. Strickland, accompanied by Pinky Harris, leaned over the table. Matthias, would you please clue us in to what you're doing? Do you guys have a few extra people here, like I asked? I have three men here, said Pinky. This is crazy, said Pinky. Then he pointed a finger at Jones. I can get you for obstruction of justice. You do that, Pinky. Don't push your luck, Jones. Then what? You going to bring me over the barracks? Exactly. If I were you, Pinky, I would be prepared to arrest Reverend Bricker. Thias, this is ridiculous. Tell us what you have. You're a lunatic, Jones, said Pinky. You can mess up the whole court case, idiot. Oh, I think the case will be intact, Pinkenstein. What did you call me? I would just guard the entrances. Pinky moved away. Pinkenstein. Pinky pushed his teeth together and shook his head. He and Strickland stepped back to the state troopers, speaking with Wendell by the front windows. Jones squatted down. Are you all ready, Mark? We're ready, Coach. Jones scanned the room. I don't see the Reverend. He's scheduled to give the invocation. We wouldn't want our guest of honor to miss the show. What about the detective? Hooper is not a detective, Sue. He's probably going to assault Fletcher Hill on foot. Who knows? Clyde Hooper is the least of my worries right now. Let's wait for the Reverend. Jones trained his eyes on Bricker at the head table. The Reverend wore a simple maroon blazer and a blue flowered print tie. Between sips of coffee, he chatted with Travis Thayer and members of the English department, while Nigel made points with the Fletchers. Jones finally approached the podium. He tapped on the microphone and spoke clearly through the room's speakers. Ladies and gentlemen, assembled faculty members, welcome to our annual recognition reception. Hamilton College's send-off at the end of the academic year. During a few hours together, so graciously hosted by Hamilton Fletcher, the resounding applause prompted the dapper Hamilton to stand and wave to the assemblage. Let me first introduce the Reverend John Paul Bricker, who has kindly agreed to say a few words in the invocation. Reverend Bricker. Jones moved to the corner with his arms folded, surprised at the level of applause. Bricker seemed to relish the attention as he had in the church at Webster's funeral. Jones studied the bearded reverend with a new intensity as Bricker clutched both sides of the Fletcher Wood podium and produced a slanted grin lost in his wispy beard. His moist eyes reflected an unusual optimism as he panned the audience. Jones hid in the corner. How wonderful it is for us to gather here today. God has truly smiled on this corner of New Hampshire. I give thanks to God for all the blessings he has bestowed upon us all. He spread his arms outward in a flamboyant gesture. Running through Jones's mind was the private purchase of Nathan Howard's land gift to First Parish Church. Almighty God, we thank you for this institution of higher learning. 
We thank you for the many devoted professors, workers, and all involved in the education of our young people. May they be secure in their future here at Hamilton. May we remember our blessings as well as our ingratitude and failings. Bricker raised his head as if he were emerging from a self-induced trance. The room conversation resumed as Bricker left the podium and took his seat at the head table. A team of waiters and busboys and food service descended upon the room with wide plates of pork roast, potatoes, and beans. Jones stared at Bricker, the anger building inside as he formed a murky image of the reverend, somehow slamming a blunt object into Webster Howard's head and later poisoning O'Connell. Dinner, cake, and ice cream lasted a full 45 minutes. The Fletcher servants pulled back the drapes over the atrium windows, and darkness descended upon the room. Jones nodded at Mark, and the video began. Shots of the campus were clear and colorful on the huge screen. Bricker, visible in the TV light, leaned back in his chair and crossed his legs. In 24 hours, the good reverend was planning to flee the country with his windfall from the Howard land and probably his kidnapping cash. A visual summary of the sports year, commentary provided by Mark Morrison, and the appropriate music surges slowly dissolved into images of several students holding pumpkins last fall. An aerial sunlit view of Hamilton Bay had the crowd gasping. A helicopter was hired to film a stunning effect approaching Hamilton across the sparkling bay waters with the darker Devonshire hills providing a distant backdrop. The beach, cottages, and Shura Road, as well as the town landfill, passed below as the church steeple rose above the town's forested trees and the Parkview apartments. Jones watched Bricker's face. In a few seconds, the original video, now edited, would shift dramatically. A previously unused panoramic view of Hamilton Bay, shot from above the bridge at Hanson's Marina, froze with the date of Webster Howard's last venture to sea. May 28th, 1 through 2 o'clock a.m. Bricker sat rigid. His brow gradually creased and his eyes blinked erratically. Both Pinky Harris and Strickland stared at the Reverend. Amidst Beethoven's Sixth Symphony, a yellow dotted line elliptically swung to a point outside the bay where Jones believed the red-bottomed boat piloted by Bricker could have encountered the maintenance free. Immediately, the red-bottomed boat, filmed at an angle from the youth camp shore, filled the screen. But in the lower corner of the screen was the red scrape left on Webster Howard's hull. As the room buzzed, Bricker, in near darkness of the TV light, pushed his seat toward the drapes and propped his elbows on his knees. A bright specification sheet from Bill at Dewa's Lumber brilliantly highlighted the exact qualities of the paint. Fletcher Paint Company, Marine Epoxy Paint, number 12667. A brown and yellow can flashed briefly on the screen as Mark Morrison's voice echoed throughout the room. Test revealed, number 12667. Specific coating was applied recently to the Christian Youth Group's boat at the Pequonica River Camp. Further, a long collision mark on Webster Howard's boat, the maintenance-free, according to chemical research, matches the Pequonica River boat exactly. Bricker's eyes opened wide and he tapped his fingers against the water glass. Mark Morrison, holding a microphone, stood at the marina bridge. I'm Mark Morrison. Webster Howard was murdered in the early morning hours of May 28th. 
He journeyed forth from Hanson's Marina that evening and sailed for a small bar called the Pendulum on Cape Cod. When he returned to Hamilton, he was murdered at sea. Later on in the week, Hamilton's security officer, Bucky Driscoll, was kidnapped and ransom paid. Driscoll was held at First Parish's youth camp on the Pequonica River. A still shot of Bucky sitting in front of the cartoon channel appeared on the screen. Money changed hands at the bar at the end of the Cape Cod Canal. The money, the murderers, and the red rim boat are all linked. Hamilton Fletcher talked with Herbert Lane as a graphic from the weather news showed a storm highlighted in bright orange and green moving up the eastern seaboard toward New Hampshire on May 27th. Nigel turned as Mark's commentary continued. Brickard now was standing and placed his hands on the table. Let me postulate a theory, a theory of murder. A massive storm was heading up the coast and scheduled to begin on Tuesday. It would be logical to assume that a small boat still at sea on Wednesday morning would encounter the gargantuan forces beyond comprehension. A murdered man on that boat would easily be washed off the deck and swept into the raging brine. No one would be the wiser. But the storm veered south, away from the coast, and out to the Atlantic, leaving Webster Howard struggling in the last few minutes of his life to get to the radio for help. In the loud confusion, Bricker had vanished behind the drapes. Pinky Harris marched from his doorway position as a graphic of Bricker's alleged pilfering at other churches, provided by Hooper, was superimposed over an image of First Parish Church. Herbert Lane pulled the DVD player plug and the drawing room lights suddenly blazed. Bricker sprinted into the drawing room corridor. Outside, shouted Pinky. Strickland, Wendell, and the state cops rushed like players sweeping around the end in a football game. Jones dodged the guests. He traversed the long mansion hallway and turned at the foyer. Pinky's green and gray uniform came into view under the portico. His gun was drawn as Wendell and the two state cops fanned across the front drive. I hadn't planned on him bolting, shouted Jones. Nice going, Jones. Will you have your man now, Pinky? The trooper yanked the microphone from his cruiser window. As Jones rushed down the portico stairs, guests streamed out of the house. Pinky called for backups from both the state police and the Prince William police. Jones scanned the woods along the neatly trimmed lawn. Then he looked back at the pines around the huge brick mansion. He feared his vengeful actions might have allowed the Reverend to disappear. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 23 Late in the day, Jones left his house to drive up to the church. He opened the door of his jeep and got inside. As he held the key and prepared to crank over the engine, he heard an odd noise. A slimy, mottled snake shook his rattle in the passenger seat. Jones didn't move and gripped the wheel. The beady-eyed snake hissed and exposed his fangs as he slithered on the seat. Jones slowly slid his keys between his fingers as the reptile neared the dash. He held the keys, now sticking outward, and his knuckles whitened. The creature was just a few inches away. The passenger door abruptly opened. Hey, Matthias! The snake spun around toward the open door. Arnie, cigarette hanging from his mouth, stuck his head inside. Arnie, there's a rattlesnake in my car. Arnie furrowed his brow and stared at the snake. What are you afraid of, the little snake? Arnie grabbed the snake under its head as the rattler exposed his fangs. He hurled the snake onto Shore Road and it slithered away toward the woods between the buildings. Arnie, 
You saved my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, Muddy Jacobs is looking for a fall football ticket. I think I'm the luckiest man on the planet. What, do you got a hot date, huh? Arnie, that was a rattler. Yeah, right. Uh, what about the tickets? I'll get you whatever you want. I told Muddy you'd be touchy about it. Catch you later. Arnie headed back to his pickup and Jones sat in the Jeep. He was convinced that Bricker had just tried to kill him. This time he moved on foot toward the first parish church. The cleaning woman shut off the parsonage lights and Jones walked into the quiet church lighted by two silver chandeliers. The elevated wood pulpit where Bricker had preached for the past few years looked empty inside. In his zeal to trap Bricker, Jones had given him the opportunity to escape. He pressed his lips and pinned the cracked rafters. The chandelier bulbs reflected in the black, cold glass panes. Jones leaned on the pew and studied the smooth pastel painting of Christ and the angel above the organ's rising brass pipes. Pinky and the state police had the airports and bus terminals sealed, but Bricker's PT cruiser remained atop Fletcher Hill and dozens of police had scoured the hill and the surrounding countryside. They should have checked his car. He exhaled and sat back in the pew. No one had proved Janet Boudreau's connection, but she had come to Hamilton from the exact town in Vermont where Bricker had last preached, and Stephen Boudreau had arranged the real estate transactions. The speakers around the church hissed and crackled as if the microphone system had flipped on. Jones's eyes bounced from speaker to speaker. His stomach wrenched as Bricker's high-pitched, omnipresent voice once again dominated the first parish church. You want justice, Jones? He spun in the pew. Justice for those who dare to cast their demons outward into this world? Whomever has challenged the word will be punished. Whomever has made my temple a den of thieves? Where are you, Bricker? In the choir loft, like an eerie gray moon appearing through sinewy tree branches, Bricker, still clad in his maroon blazer and rifle tucked under his arms, rose above the railing. Jones now feared making any sudden movement. Think about what you're doing, Bricker. You have no chance if you kill me. I have done the Lord's work. He lifted a heavy brass candle holder to the rail. I have taken away those who would destroy the temple. His legs grew weak as Bricker slowly raised the gun. Put down the rifle, Reverend. Webster Howard was going to kill me, Jones. I decimated that boat because of the secret envelope. I sent that fool Janet over to the track with the thermos. <laughs> and she thought Webster had poisoned her dog. You did it. Aha! Then the authorities will think she had the motive. When that didn't work, you sent her to the bridge. She thought I would meet her. She looks real guilty, Jones. I'm surprised you're still alive. Somehow you stole that evidence from O'Connell. Bricker laughed in a low, almost <laughs> unworldly wail. <laughs> you're a lowlife, Bricker. You tried to kill me with that snake. Just like you killed Webster Howard when he got too close at the pendulum. No, I am going to kill you in self-defense with my rifle. Then he paused and sighed. I had it all planned, and with Driscoll's ransom, I had money set for life. 
My attorney handled it all at the pendulum. Sure, Janet's father from your parish in Vermont. You sold off the Howard land, and then you took Hamilton Fletcher's money. And you ruined her life just because she trusted you. Shut up! And then you tried to kill me with that snake. He rhymed up Jones in the rifle sight. You and that priest trying to get my land. It wasn't your land. At least I'll have the satisfaction of killing you. Even if Jones dove to the floor, Bricker could still pump bullets into his body. Bricker, listen to me. You will now do your explaining to God Almighty. A single rifle crack from above and behind shook the church. Jones felt no pain nor heard a bullet whizzing. Bricker's mouth opened and his expression flattened as his weapon fell and bounced on the carpet below. He held his bloody blue shirt at the chest. His body twice turned in midair and cracked against the altar. Jones stared at his fallen form and then turned toward the front of the church. Gunpowder lingered in the sanctuary as Hooper, in combat fatigues, looked over the scope of a high-powered rifle. He stared at the reverend's glassy eyes. His limbs spread lifeless over the blood-soaked carpet. Jones slowly looked back to Hooper. The detective's voice echoed over the church. The deed is done. Hooper then disappeared into the darkness. Now I know I'm the luckiest man on the face of the planet. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Epilogue. Mabel Howard's in Millbury, said Jones. There's already dating some school superintendent up there. Must be time for a new Mercedes, said Gallagher. Gallagher in a sports shirt and jeans accompanied Jones in the early evening light. The priest had become gloomy after he received news of Bricker's demise. They walked along the horse stalls with Gallagher gesturing as he spoke about Bricker. They were supposed to meet Coco in Vinnie's stall. I'm a pretty good judge of people, but I had no idea of the extent of Bricker's activities. Jim, he had Hamilton Fletcher fooled, and Hamilton distrusts everybody. At least Bricker's wife told him about the bag stuffed behind the altar. She was questioned by George, and then she left town. What about the girl? She's not around. Her father, the lawyer? asked Gallagher. Right. Her father has actually done nothing wrong. He just handled the money from Bricker and Vermont in here. Attorney Boudreau didn't ask any questions. He and his wife had beachfront property in Sandwich, Massachusetts. Hence the meetings at the bar. That's right. I can't divulge everything, but Coco really liked that girl. I know he did. Gallagher stopped about halfway. That man is as tough as nails. No one messes with Coco. But this woman was different. And he melted. And from what he told me, she felt the same way. Then it all fell apart. After he asked her about spiking Webster's thermos, she left him high and dry at a resort in Palm Springs. He just stood there once he knew she had left him. Just stared at that mountain. San Jacinto. Right. Then he finally called you. You think she'll contact him again? Gallagher tightened his blue eyes. I don't know. I'm not sure. Well, we'll take him out to eat and forget about this whole thing. They began walking again, but this time neither man spoke. There was talking ahead as they neared the install where Vinny was housed. Just a few feet away, the voices of Bucky and Annie Dewars got louder. Come on, Vinny. I know you can do it. Come on, Vinny. I'll get you some sugar candy, said Arnie. Maybe he doesn't like sugar candy. Come on, it worked for Jake at the Fletcher Stables. Arnie neared the horse's mouth. I'll give you 50 bucks, Vinny. Arnie, 
The horse has no idea what you're talking about, said Jones. Ah, oh, money talks! I wasn't aware you could talk to a horse, said Gallagher. Hey, it's Father Jerry Donahue! Jim. No, I'm Arnie. Right. Guess if it was good enough for Dr. Doolittle, Arnie, it's good enough for you. Oh, yeah, is Doolittle working with Dr. Bradgate? Gallagher mouthed the words, no. He shook his head and walked around the Dutch door. Where's Coco? asked Jones. Huh? Coco, we're supposed to meet him here. Haven't seen him. Bucky looked both ways down the stalls. She really coming over here? That's what I heard. It's getting dark. You know what I told you, Buckster? What did he say, Arnie? My lips are sealed. Arnie, thanks again for saving my life. Yeah, well, just make sure you don't weasel out of getting me and Muddy those tickets. Bucky wandered over to the mirror and put a hand on his head and the other hand under his chin. What are you doing, Bucky? Coco told the Buckster if he got near Vinny again, he'd crush his face. Gallagher chuckled and turned away. But your lips are sealed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bucky pulled back the barnboard frame mirror. A square envelope with a wax seal and the name Secret in red letters on the face fell to the straw. Oh, I forgot all about this. What have you got, Bucky? Love letters? Asked Jones. Jim, could you drop me off at the club? I think I know where Coco is. I wonder why he had me put this behind the mirror. Who's that? Hamilton Fletcher? Asked Arnie. No. Hey, Vinny, you get Epis, buddy. Mr. Ed, he was a star. You're a zero. Webster. Jones's head snapped to the right. Webster had you put that envelope behind the mirror? Yeah, before he left on a boat. Let me see that, said Jones, extending his hand. Oh, no, that would be illegal. Webster told me to keep my mouth shut. When did that ever stop you? Jones grabbed the envelope. He's dead, Bucky. Jones removed the wax seal. Inside was a crisp piece of paper with blue-inked handwriting. Jones read it out loud. When somebody reads this, I will be dead. I will have been punished for what I am about to do. I am going to kill Reverend Bricker. My father donated my family's land to First Parish Church. Reverend Bricker stole the proceeds for the land himself. I pleaded with him to give the money back, but he refused. Now he will die at sea. He disrespected my family and he disrespected me. I do not regret my actions. Webster Howard Jones watched the taillights of Father Gallagher's Lincoln move down the narrow asphalt from Observatory Point on the northwest corner of Prince William. The White Dome Celestial Observatory was mostly a museum where groups gathered for public lectures and classes, but the surrounding low ramped wall formed a rim around the central dome and provided a rendezvous place for lovers and friends. Below, the lights of Prince William sparkled, and the crosstown bridge's traffic constantly pulsed south toward Massachusetts and north toward Maine. Behind, Hamilton College and the sparse valley lights were clear to the northeast. He had first sensed the cigarette smoke halfway around the ramp. Coco's shaggy hair and handheld glowing cigarette was silhouetted against the crosstown bridge. Jones walked step by step. I, uh, I see you've been uh, talking with Gallagher. His dark eyes and face were tinted blue from the reflection of the white walls. You all right? Of course I'm all right, Jonesy. What the hell's the matter with you? Jones placed both his hands on the grainy wall. It's like being above the world up here. Yeah, I like it up here because nobody bothers you. You can even hear the traffic on the Crosstown Bridge if you listen close enough. Jones again stared at the bridge. 
Club Max's neon was barely visible across and up the river. The river starts up in northern Vermont, Jonesy. You can shoot the rapids near the border for 20 miles. Then the river spreads out. Families uh, take their houseboats out in the summertime. In the winter, the kids try and cross the ice. I did it as a kid. No matter what, the river always empties into the ocean. I stood right here with you, Jonesy, less than a week ago. You really cared about J.B. He inhaled the cigarette, held the smoke briefly before he exhaled and chucked the cigarette across the cement. Yeah. Hey, I'm going back home and listen to some of my Uncle Dulio's stories. I'll enjoy my mother's meatballs and pasta and my cousins are coming over. Life goes on. Where is she? He turned to Jones and stared for a few seconds. I don't know. Maybe, no maybes, Jonesy. I can't say it doesn't hurt, it does. One thing I told you a long time ago, Jonesy. I may get slammed and the odds may stack up against me, but I always get up and stretch out the odds. Thanks for listening to the Handyman Secret Matthias Jones series by Robert P. Fitton. Poor Coco uh, and Janet Boudreau, but he'll get over it. Next time, I'm sticking with Jones again. It's called Funeral March for the Maestro, A Very Weird Murder. That's next time on Fitting on the Air. The plane's taking off, but I'm not on it. I'm staying in Hamilton, New Hampshire. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.